Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Welcome to another episode of the Resolve podcast. I have an exciting new guest this week, Johnny Castles. He does a lot of work with students, especially when it comes to academic strategies and tutoring. So welcome, Johnny. And could you just take some time and talk a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. You know, I've been working with students in a one-to-one capacity since I was 18 years old. And uh, if we do the arithmetic, that puts me at 17 years of experience. I started primarily working uh, one-to-one tutoring with students, uh, mostly mathematics, a little bit of physics and economics. And sort of as the years passed, um, I started branching into other subjects, but also observing that being an effective academic mentor wasn't necessarily just about explaining content as clearly as possible. It was about developing a more holistic approach for not just understanding the student, but understanding the person and what they were going through when it came to school. Mm -hmm. And what does that entail? What do you mean by understanding the person? Well, for example, uh, for me, one of my big experiences was, and a big sense of my identity as an adolescent was the fact that I was a hockey player. You know, it sort of crept into the lexicon that I used, um, the way that I interacted with other people, um, the metaphors that I would construct in my head to rally myself to get work done. And so being able to gain those types of insights on your students and, you know, develop a better understanding of what constitutes their identity. I think gives you a much more meaningful tool set for motivating them to master the content and work with the content in the way that will produce real results. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you explain a little bit more about your experience with hockey and that how that kind of crafts your identity and your mindset? Absolutely. Um, So I was, uh, I guess, for elementary school, uh, I went to a public school in Toronto, Brown Public School. And for grade seven, uh, my parents transitioned me to a private school. And the jump was significant, uh, not just in workload, but in terms of just the difficulty of the courses. I think there were some conceptual gaps in a lot of courses that Uh, didn't necessarily get filled in the way that they would need to. And so I really experienced a lot of failure in my first year. And, you know, operating in the face of failure when you're unfamiliar with it is kind of a a scary circumstance. So what I did is I, to a certain extent, reverted to my experiences with failure that I was familiar with. And that was in hockey. You know, I've, I've, every athlete will say they've had bad games, they've had slumps and stretches and things like that. And being able to take that academic experience, regardless of how correct or incorrect the comparison was, but in my mind, being able to tangibly or not even tangibly, but being able to represent that lack of success with something that I was familiar with, it gave me a narrative to follow and created a dialogue with myself where I could take steps to change things. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. 
it makes sense. And is, is that sort of why you decided to kind of go into tutoring and working with students? Really great question. And, and you're bang on. You know, my first year at my new school, um, I failed for my five first exams. And when I say failed, I mean, like, when you get below 45%, they don't even tell you what you got. They put a little inequality that says less than 45. And so I wasn't even close. And, and by the end of it, in my senior year, and I've, I've told this to a lot of my students, I was on the wait list at Princeton. It was a really, really big turnaround for me. And the tools that I had to develop and the sort of experiences that I went through were challenging, but extremely empowering. And being able to help kids go through those same stages and equip them with the same, stool, yeah, same tools to feel that same sense of empowerment seems like a really worthwhile or seemed like and still is a worthwhile career path to, to, to march down. And ha has that been your entire career? Yeah, or you know, yeah. So I, when I was at McGill, I did have uh, a couple summers where I did some, you know, like a, like a banking internship and stuff like that. I always <clears throat> found my way back to doing one-to-one -one tutoring. When I was basically what happened is after high school, I took two years off to play hockey. And um, because I was traveling a lot, I couldn't get a job at the local garden center or the grocery store because I couldn't commit to any sort of regular shift because some weekends I'd be in the States and, and other weekends I'd be sort of in different parts of the province. At that point, done pretty well in school. So I had, you know, the opportunity to volunteer at my old high school in the capacity of a student teacher. Students started asking me about uh, tutoring and uh, I was hooked right away. The one-to-one the one-to-one -one tutoring dynamic was just such fertile ground to help kids realize the possibility for change. Um, and I always just kept with it. Even when I had my banking internships finish at, let's say, six or seven, I would still find a way to squeeze in one or two students into the evenings. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's something that you're really passionate about. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I got kicked in the teeth a lot in the classroom and, and a lot of it was my, uh, you know, my own doing. And uh, so I think when I when I get a chance to work with students who are who are struggling, um, there's a lot of empathy there. And there's also an awareness of the sense of, as I said, empowerment that can come from pulling yourself out of that hole, if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, have you found that the struggles that students face have changed over time? They know you've been doing this for a while now. Really great question. Um, and, and I think COVID has especially brought a whole new set of challenges for students um, and their mental well-being. Um, you know, I would say that the most obvious way to answer that question is the accessibility to entertainment um, has never been greater. The accessibility to distraction, the accessibility to finding out what you're missing is something that's never, um, never been more present in, in, in kids' lives. And in some cases, that can really operate at the forefront of their mind and sometimes put their academics to the back burner. Um, when I started doing this, I don't even, yeah, when I started doing this, the iPhone, I don't, wasn't even, I think the iPhone one had just come out and it was only available in the States. You know, everybody had a Blackberry. There was no such thing as Instagram. There was no such thing as Snapchat. I think Facebook was in its larval stages where you actually had to have a school account to be able to sign up. In terms of the challenges, they've absolutely evolved um, and they have changed. 
And I don't want to say technology is to blame because I don't like to use that word, but it's definitely a meaningful factor in, in the changes in those challenges, if that makes sense. Uh, on the other side of things, technology has also made it easier for students with certain accessibility issues as well, hasn't it? Absolutely. You know, it is, you know, sometimes I talk to students, you know, there's this definitely this narrative out there, for example, if we talk about social media, that there's the evils of social media or like the evils of technology. I think it's kind of like a handgun in the right hand. It's extremely helpful, you know, or maybe let's not use that example, but, you know, it's really in the hands of the user and how they intend on using it that I think creates the opportunity for, you know, empowerment or accessibility or distraction um, and, and, and in some cases, mental anguish, if that makes sense. Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, we had to cut out a short part of this interview where Johnny talked about how we can use tools like the basic do not disturb functions on our phones to our advantage. And that leads into our further discussion on the uses of technology and even music as study aids. Again, apologies, but we had some internet difficulties here. Mm -hmm. I love just uh, listening to uh, sci-fi movie soundtracks. So like 2001, The Space Odyssey, Interstellar. Interstellar, Hans Zimmerman, as soon as you said that, I was like, that's one of my favorites. No Time for Caution, Mountains. These are all like great songs that are really uplifting. And to be honest, if you're kind of in a funk, like they bring you up a bit and they bring your mood up a bit to just power through whatever you're doing. And the fact that they're instrumentals, I think is huge. I think it just, it gets your brain in a certain modality where you're, you're in the rhythm of the song, but you're not necessarily being distracted by the lyrical content. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, uh, I totally agree with that. And uh, how, how do you teach effective studying or try to instill habits with some of the students that you work with? So, you know, it's a very good question. And I think I hate to give you an, it depends. Um, In terms of just like the broader framework that I like to employ, um, I think there's a lot of students who walk into school thinking that success is a given, you know, and this is where, again, understanding your student's sense of identity um, can be a really crucial factor in being able to build out, well, let's not call them predictive models, but building out models that they can construct for success in the classroom. Um, just as an example, you know, for me as a hockey player to go back to that, or if I have a student who's an athlete or a performer, when they have a performance or a game, which what I'd say is quite comparable to a test, there's a lot of variables that go into the prep for that particular occasion. So for a performer or an athlete, what did you eat on that day? How much sleep did you get the night before? Um, you know, when your practices leading up to that game or your practices or recitals leading up to that performance, what was the level of intensity that you carried into it? What were the tactical and strategic deficiencies that you observed in that practice? And, you know, the idea is kids are so good in these extracurricular activities at building out these really elaborate models for preparation. But when it comes to school, they're like, I don't know, you know, I just, I studied. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? Did you account for the time constraint in your studying? Uh, no. Did you account for the possibility of randomization and the content in your studying? Well, I don't even know what that word means, but sure. You know, like these are the kind of conversations I've had with a lot of students. And so 
My thing is, is first of all, giving them a good understanding of the different variables that they have control over for increasing their probability of success. And again, attacking that conversation, I think is significantly more, or rather I would say the outcome of that conversation is significantly more fruitful when you have something you can connect it to that's personally meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always the whole meaning aspect. And how do you work on the kind of other side of things where you have uh, kids that are already seeing some level of success, but they're they're anxious or they want to do better or they're worried about, you know, not doing good enough, not getting into a prestigious university. So that's, you know, and that's, that's a problem that, that has become more prevalent over time. And I don't know if that's, you know, attributable to what we were talking about before, where you can now go on your Instagram and you can see in their little bio, like, oh, you know, Harvard, you know, class of 2026 or or Dartmouth or Queens Commerce or University of Toronto, or, you know, you fill in the blank, you know, I think those are definitely culprits in exacerbating the sense of anxiousness. Um, For students like that, achievers who are just experiencing a little bit of, um, let's call it anxiousness um, surrounding the level of achievement that they can attain, given their goals. My thing is always, you know, they're going to have their goals that are personally meaningful for them. And I don't think it's necessarily fair for me to try and adjust those goals necessarily. Um, But I do think that there's space for me to explore the narrative behind those goals and why they've chosen to make it as something that's as heavy as it is for them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, It sounds sounds like you thought a lot about narrative and identity and how that sort of affects a a student. And you've also talked about your experience working a little in banking. How How does all of that get turned into your uh, your kind of philosophy? Like what, where does your interest in narrative and identity come from and how did you craft that? Because it's really fascinating. For me, it, w- it was personal experience would be the first thing. Coming to terms with the fact that I identified as an athlete and not as a student athlete was a big part in me understanding why I experienced little to no success in the classroom. And as weird as it sounds, you know, or let me rephrase that, for a 12-year-old, as weird as it sounds, that identity construct is a choice. And as soon as I was in a position where I could appreciate that element of choice, the possibility of success became, or the probability of success somehow showed up as as, as higher. Instead of it being a 5% likelihood, it became a 50% or a 60% likelihood. And suddenly I started taking steps that I knew were associated with good students, going to extra help, doing homework, studying in a non-passive way. These were things I kind of knew that good students did, but because I never identified as a good student, I didn't do them. And then I realized that that was a choice that I identified as a poor student. Mm -hmm. And suddenly when I stopped identifying myself as such, those choices became something that I could actually act on you know what i mean i could go to extra help i could actually do my homework i could devise a study strategy like all the kids who are super smart in my class and what the funny thing was is within i mean it took some time but i started crawling out of the basement of academia 
And I started scoring grades that left me really fulfilled. And so, you know, you asked the question, like, you know, for my practice, how did this kind of come to be? Well, it was such an empowering experience. And I think a lot of it was rooted in identity. And I think it's really hard to escape identity without discussing narrative, because I think the narrative bolsters the identity. And that's, again, something that at that age, initially, I had no idea it was a choice I was making about the story I was telling. I didn't even know it was a story. I thought it was an objective recapitulation of events that, you know, teachers not liking me, tests not being fair, exams being bogus. These were objective in my mind, when in actuality, it was a narrative that I had constructed to support an identity, which was I'm an athlete, not a student. And then when you do that, you're in a position where you're not responsible. And being in a position of no responsibility is really nice because you can be a victim. But when you're a victim, there's nothing you can do and there's no moves you can make. You're stranded, you're stuck. And that often doesn't leave people too fulfilled in my experience. Mm -hmm. And do you find that like, say uh, 15 years ago versus five years ago versus now, the way students see being smart has changed? Because I remember a lot of media growing up where the smart kids in TV shows weren't necessarily cool. And I've noticed that sort of start to change in movies, in media. And I'm sure that also affects the narrative to some degree. Really great point. You know, I was actually talking, I want to say, I think it was with my, with my father-in-law, it might've been a couple of months ago, but the way male archetypes have evolved in the media. When I was a kid, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. These were the guys that you like, look, these were the male role models that were on the screen. These were the cool guys. And now if you juxtapose that to, to what is on the TV screen or the computer screen or even the movie screen today, it's a totally different paradigm in terms of what are the attributes or the desirable attributes of a productive contributor to society. It's not just some big jacked guy who can save the day. You know, like it's almost hilarious saying it out loud. There is this newfound appreciation, it seems, in mass media for intellectual capacity and the ability to utilize it in new and creative ways. You know, 30 years ago, there weren't that many movies about startups and tech geniuses. And, and, but now there's all sorts of movies and films that explore that idea. Kids are interested in it. And so I would totally agree with you. I think that's a great point, Simon, that we're witnessing a paradigm shift in terms of the cultural, or we could say social currency that kids are now trading between one another. You know, 15 years ago, there wasn't that same emphasis. You know, 15 years ago, there was not, I didn't have kids telling me like, I want to work either in VC or in tech startup. I want to be on the forefront. You know, 15 years ago, I, I had kids just telling me they wanted a good job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They wanted a good job. Whereas now there's a more concrete ambition kind of focusing their efforts. Um, and I think those new ambitions to a certain extent are focused more on intellectual capital. The only scary thing is that I see is that with a lot of the kids, they're aware of it, but they don't necessarily see the direct connection or the pathway between, let's say, grade 10 math and working at that startup. They're able to construct a narrative where it's like, when am I going to be factoring a quadratic? 
working at a tech company? When am I going to be using Sokotoa? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's a it's it, it's unfortunate because where I think school is this kind of beautiful place where it feels like the chips are on the table. You're playing real, you're playing for real money. But in actuality, as we know, you know, it's not like when you get out the other side, you're like, there's a lot of buffers. You're not actually playing with real chips. And you get this chance to experience like, you know, that there are some stakes at play and you get to pour yourself into it. And you get to feel like you're playing in a real game, not just, you know, not just a scrimmage. And you kind of get a chance to kind of test your abilities when you feel like it's a real game and not a scrimmage. And you learn these problem solving skills and you get to learn so much about yourself and how you respond to pressure. And you get these opportunities. You know, there's so many years of school that you get these opportunities to be like, well, that didn't work well for me. I can adjust. I'm not getting fired from school. I'm not, you know, they're not going to tell me like, you know what, we're not going to, we're not, you know, you, you just didn't, you just didn't perform well enough that we think we're going to, I mean, obviously there's a threshold, you got to pass the course, but you know, you get these opportunities to make mistakes, but you get to make those mistakes in the face of ostensible stakes, which then teaches you a lot about yourself. And, and kids don't see that. It's a little too literal for them, I think right now. And I don't know what the culprit is there, but that that's one of the challenges I'm kind of, uh, I'm encountering. Is that How do you kind of, balance the stakes where on one hand you have school is important and then on the other hand you have school isn't everything i know there's Great. a lot of young people so stressed about that right now totally that's a really great question and i always go back to and again the identity piece you know if i have a student who's let's say doing a recital and they're doing it at their school you know, or a student who's got a soccer game and it's a big soccer game against a team that they're like, man, I got to be there. I always ask them, if we went out on the street right now and we asked 10 people about this soccer game, do you think anyone would be aware that you have this soccer game in your schedule? The answer would be unequivocally no. But you've been the one who has the cognitive resources to ascribe importance to this event. Now, I think it's important that kids learn how to ascribe importance to events because that's how they rally their intellectual and emotional resources towards trying to achieve something. But I also think it's really important that you're aware of the fact that you're the one who's created the importance, that it's your choice in that regard. So anytime I have a big, you know, I had a big game in hockey, if I, you know, I went to UCC. So our big game was usually against St. Andrews college or Nichols or something. I knew that if I went on to Yahoo sports or TSN, there wasn't going to be an article about my game. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't, it was important to me. And so the idea is like, yes, it's important, but I'm the one who's chosen to impose the importance on it. And again, you know, or I hope that I've been clearly communicating, I'm big on choice. It becomes a little bit lighter when you acknowledge it as your choice, as opposed to some cultural or social absolute. Yeah. And uh, how do you kind of deal with the parents? Because obviously, uh, to some extent, if you want a student to be successful and have some change, sometimes that might involve including the parents into the plan and navigating some of the complex expectations they might have for students. Really, another really good question. And, you know, they say it takes a village. 
And, um, you know, I, I, my, my son's five and a half months old. So he's still at an age where, you know, he basically goes to the washroom, eats and cries and sleeps. So uh, it might not take a village with him, but I, I know with time it will. Um, when it comes to parents, you know, my thing is, if I, you know, there's 168 hours in the week and with some students, you know, we're seeing each other as little as 30 minutes a week and as much as maybe two and a half to three hours per week. And so, first of all, I think it's pivotal when parents are involved in some way in their academic success. And in some cases, it can be in a more supportive secondary role. There are a lot of students who love flexing their independence and their autonomy. They love the idea that it's their journey and they're the ones pushing the ball up the field. In other students' cases, they don't necessarily have the organizational framework to consistently act on that. And so parents can be a massively integral role, or sorry, a massively important component to creating structure in those hours away from the time with me. And so being able to have check-ins with parents and provide, you know, here's the framework I'm trying to create. Here are some ways that I think if you have the capacity that you can help in creating that framework within. That's where I think, you know, parents can be extremely valuable. The real challenge I find sometimes with parents, and this isn't their fault, it's that, you know, you and I have talked about how much things have changed over the past 15 years. Well, you know, when we talk about when parents were teenagers, and now in some cases, that's 20, 25, 30 years, the amount of change that's occurred is, is, is mind-blowing. And I think to a certain extent, some parents understandably, aren't as aware of what that change looks like in the life of a teenager. And they impose, you know, a paradigm that was fully functional 30 years ago, but doesn't have much applicability in today's framework. Does that make sense? And, yeah. and, and, being, and, and, and being able to have conversations with parents about how different it can be. Let's take a really basic example. You know, you talk about getting into universities. I've had some parents who are like, well, you know, I went to Cornell and, you know, I did my, my, it's like, to be honest, like getting into Cornell 35 years ago was way easier than it is now. Like, you know, your son, your daughter, however they identify, they're going to have to move mountains to get into that school. Whereas 35 years ago, it was having a good GPA and having a couple good recommendations, potentially even knowing someone. I don't want to invalidate the accomplishments, but it's a different paradigm now. And sometimes you have to have those types of conversations tactfully, but just to be like, hey, you know, they're pulling a slightly heavier load here and imposing your paradigm on their experience. You might be just dropping a 50 pound dumbbell on the load they're already pulling. Yeah, I like to joke that sometimes, you know, saving a few cats from fires might not be enough. You also, you know, you, you also need to kiss some crying babies, uh, you know, volunteer at the hospital, discover a cure for something. It, yeah, it's very complicated now. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, and, 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 you know, you know, we had a student that we were working with who, who didn't get into their first choice school, um, which was like, you know, which was, which was, a, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking for this particular student. But it created really fertile ground for a very meaningful conversation. I remember we were supposed to do math for the hour, but we started talking about, you know, 
well, wherein lies the heartbreak and wherein lies the value of a university education for this specific student. And we suddenly started realizing that, you know, the second choice basically, you know, you start exploring the narrative of why this person wanted to go to their first choice. Well, it was like, well, it's nothing very specific to the first choice. So it's, you know, I guess, where am I going with this? There's, there's this massive expectation that gets created to accomplish something that isn't actually necessarily overly specific to the desired accomplishment. But when they don't achieve the result, it's still heart-wrenching, but it gives you this opportunity to explore, well, why did you want to go to school X? I don't know. It's, you know, it's got that reputation. I'm like, okay, well, you want to study, you know, you want to study physics. Can you do this at school? Why? Yeah. How many kids go to post-grad opportunities out of school? Why? I think it's the same number. One of them's in California. The other's in, you know, on the East coast. I think California is pretty cool. Right. You like visiting. Do you know what I mean? Like you get a chance to, to sort of unpack the heaviness associated with this. And I've always wondered, is it because you have to cure a disease and, and save some screaming babies and save cats from trees that it gets so built up. But when you get a chance to kind of break it down as to why you actually want to go through all that, kids are often not necessarily as aware specifically of yeah. why they want to do it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, my experience with U of T, U of T has the prestige of being the number one university in Canada, but the class sizes are massive. There's a lot of issues with the way testing occurs and how they try to make sure class averages are around a C plus B minus, even if it means making tests and exams harder if, you know, students did too well on the first one. And a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these rankings aren't actually based out of how much the students enjoy the experience or how well the faculty there teaches. It's, it's a phenomenal, like rankings are, you know, I've always kind of been curious. You look at Forbes, you look at like, well, how many of you have spent time sitting in a lecture hall, writing a midterm, trying to get extra help on an assignment that you got to see on? Do you know what I mean? Like everything's really anecdotal. And I think anyone who's taken a science course realizes that like anecdotal evidence can't be the only evidence on which you form a conclusion. Um, and, you know, my thing I always tell students is that like you're not your degree. And I think the aim of any educational experience is just coming out of it a more empowered individual. And that can be intellectually, that can be socially, that can be, but what's gonna, how are you gonna come out of, you know, is that school gonna make you, allow you or create the space for you to come out of this as a better person? However you define better. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of cases, they don't actually ask that question. As you said, they get caught up in the rankings. Hey, it's like, it's an Instagram bio, like U of T class of 2026. Like, you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, again, there can be a degree of fulfillment that does come from being like, I'm going to the best school in Canada. But I don't think that can be the only thing carrying the freight when you're going through an experience like that. Because I think you kind of realize that by deriving emotional utility from going to the best school in Canada, you're living your life through the eyes of other people. And that's just not sustainable in my experience. Mm -hmm. And also some of the class sizes for introductory courses in U of T are 
like a thousand two hundred, a thousand five hundred people, just something yeah, that like students from small schools they've never seen anything close to that. Like that but was a small more, stadium. Yeah. That was more than the amount of people I had in uh, my high school. Yeah, one class. It's, it's what I remember. I I went to McGill, and I remember my one of the first year econ classes I took. I think the enrollment was seven hundred kids. And I remember the first couple lectures um i was in a lecture hall that like honestly had more seating capacity than some of the ranks i had played junior hockey in. like i was like this is bananas um like why i'm like you know does it matter that i'm here does anyone care like if i show up like you know what i mean um but yeah no it, it can be overwhelming without a doubt but as i said i think for some kids you know that experience might not be all bad because it gives them a chance to just sort of show up do their work and then leave you know what i mean some kids mm -hmm. prefer to have that type of you know an independent autonomous learning experience um for others that doesn't work at all because they want a sense of connection and they want to feel like their attendance is something that contributes to the fabric of the experience but you know again it's where you think with the knowledge available at the time of the decision are you going to be able to come out as a more capable confident better person at the other end of it and when you start looking at it through that lens there's a lot of really great universities in this part of the world that would facilitate that mm -hmm. and do you have any uh final tips that you want to uh, give any students or parents right now yeah i think first of all um you know my thing with exams you know that's always kind of been a hot button issue it's sort of like well we have no hurt exams we have um exams where you know your grades can't go up or go down or they don't count or you have assignments instead one thing i always like to tell students is that if you're putting your name on something i think that should be kind of important to you and building that idea of you know when you put your name on something you should always put your best best, best foot forward especially as a lot of kids who are you know young adults kind of carrying themselves into adulthood being aware of the fact that you know you put your name on something i think it's important to represent yourself in the best way possible um that doesn't necessarily mean a 90 or an 80 it doesn't mean any number it just means that you should you should really just again put your best foot forward when you're putting your name on it second thing on a kind of unrelated note one tip i would give parents and students specificity is something that often when you're doing an internal audit of why something didn't go the way you wanted it to is often lacking so if, very often when students don't do well on a test or an exam there is a baffling level of vagary surrounding the analysis of what happened and i've had students where the difference between them getting a you know the grade they were unfulfilled with and the grade that they were actually really satisfied with was mixing in an eight to 10 minute treadmill run in the morning before they write their test. And you know what's the rationale behind that? Well, you someone who got really anxious before tests. And when you get anxious, you start secreting certain hormones and those hormones have physiological effects. Well, one way to put those hormones to work is to actually get a little bit of physical exercise. And for him, he was like, yeah, I thought my, my thinking was so much more clear. And so I would say one big tip is that if you're looking to guide your son or your daughter, you know, however they identify, through a result that's not satisfactory in their eyes, not fulfilling, 
really try and get into the nitty gritty. I had one student who wouldn't eat breakfast in the morning. And anytime that student wrote a first period test, they never did as well as if they'd written the test after lunch. But they never thought to really get into the sort of granular variables of success, which was, what did you have to eat in the morning? Uh, nothing. I get up at eight and I just throw my uniform on and I go to class. And I'm like, well, you, you wrote a test on a 12 hour fast. Like, you know what I mean? So that, that would be one, one tip I would consider sharing with parents and students is, you know, try and get specific when you're not fulfilled by a result, because there's actually a lot of variables that are so within your immediate control for increasing the probability of achieving that fulfilling result. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for uh, all the valuable advice and for chatting with us. And thanks so much uh, for having me, Simon. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, if you have any links that you want to share with us, we can put them in the description of the podcast as well. Amazing. Yeah, I absolutely will have some cool. without a doubt. Yeah, great. So uh, thanks for chatting with me. And of course, a disclaimer. This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2vs.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two Vs, .ca, to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till next time, take care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street.